0: show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the
1: crowd you don't have to live the way tell you to. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, and changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. times get tougher, even if they don't coming to you once again from arlington texas i know we did all last week from the bug out location slash homestead in the new office Uh, but we'll be back here for at least a week maybe two to finish up the last final shove of this you know what's kind of changed though i don't feel like this is my home anymore Uh, for the first time when we left arkansas i didn't say okay let's go home i said let's go back to the house and get ready to come back home and uh it's really a transition that's uh that means an awful lot in our lives. And even my wife this time said, I don't want to leave. Uh, so I think we've really started to grow some roots uh, that fast. I guess it's been six years of uh, sprouting. Uh, but the last few weeks have really been some root putting down. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And those of you that have seen the pictures of the decks up there, you know why I want to go back, man. I just want to be sitting on that deck right now, maybe recording a remote show instead of doing it from the office with a cup of coffee. Uh, Got to find us some uh, furniture for it though first. Anyway, today is Monday. And what does that mean? That means it's going to be a show dedicated to you. It's going to be your questions, comments, and uh, commentary. And quite a few pieces of video clips that I have stripped the audio out for you today as well. And uh, I might do another show like that this week. I might do Wednesday's show maybe like this. I'm going to tell you right away. I'll give you a little sneak peek. Tomorrow I'm going to do a show on bow hunting. And you might be thinking bow hunting, but bow hunting's in the fall. This is the spring. You know, we're we're dodging tornadoes and hailstorms right now. Jack, is this the time to talk about bow hunting? Well, it is. Uh, I'll tell you why tomorrow. You have to tune in before we get into your comments, questions, and commentary today. Though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the Survival Podcast is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, up to what are we up to now? I usually say the show episode, but with everything in flux, I've stopped doing that. 649 episodes uh, as of Friday. 650 today. Um, the sponsors help make that happen sponsor of the day number one is a very long time sponsor been around uh, with us for I guess almost two years now and uh, I think is planning on renewing when their contract comes to term uh, once again uh, because they love doing business with our audience and that's Western Botanicals and when I need something that I can't just go out in wildcraft or grow in my backyard or I don't have it and it's an herbal the first place I look is Western Botanicals and here's what I found no matter what I'm looking for they have it and uh, that's rare that's unusual especially in the world of whole herbs if you want to do your own uh, uh, preparation, crafting, and things like that. If you need information, if you want to know how to do something, you hit the phone up, man, and Dr. Christensen will help you out and tell you how to put things together. Uh, their creed is they want to see an herbalist in every home in America. And they're not trying to keep the knowledge secret and say, we have this secret formula. You know, They want to tell you everything, how to do it, what to do it with. But if you want it done for you, they have, of course, stuff that's already put together. So check out Western Botanicals today. And remember, if you are a member of the Support Brigade, Uh, you get their, you get their premium membership free. That normally costs 50 bucks a year. You get it free and you get 25% off all orders. Uh, next up today is knifekits.com. Again, knifekits.com. I love knifekits because everybody can take part in making knives if you use knifekits.com because that's what they have is knife kits. But if you're a master bladesmith and you're just looking for raw material, you can get that too cool stuff like mammoth tusk for handle material till I heard of knife kits I didn't know you could get your hands on genuine mammoth tusk I thought all that stuff would be in uh, like museums or something like that but you can get it it's actually kind of affordable I think I'm gonna have to stop talking about this and make myself or get someone that's a little bit better than me to make me a mammoth tusk handled knife that sounds pretty cool uh, but again uh, knife kits also does 10% off to all members of the support brigade so those are two sponsors that both do something not just for the show but also for the support brigade so try to give them some business Uh, next up I want to remind you about the gear shop we have a lot of really cool stuff in the gear shop check out the gear shop connect with us on Facebook YouTube and Twitter and do consider joining the member support brigade in addition to those two examples there's 25 other vendors that provide discounts to the member support brigade I've got a custom codex holder uh, manufacturer that I'm trying to get in this week it's kind of hard because I have my computers in different locations now, and I don't really have the software any here, but I can probably do enough raw coding that I can get them added. Uh, but I'm going to try to do that. But I keep adding stuff to the uh, MSB. And, folks, once we get back into Arkansas and we're there full-time and I'm going to the office every day, you watch, strap it and see what I do with the MSB next. So consider joining in today. And with that, let's go ahead and take uh, your first email. Actually, I have a series of emails on a single subject. I've been telling you guys that, The government is going to institute, at the state and federal levels both, a road usage tax. Uh, You're going to pay to drive. And every time you go anywhere, you're going to pay to drive. Basically, you can call this a movement tax, they'll never call it that because uh, civil libertarians would have a heart attack if they use that term, but that's really what it's going to be. Get in your car, go somewhere, pay to go. Uh, And why they're going to do that? I've had people ask me, Jack, why are you so positive about this? Well, it's a, it's a number of things. One, it's massive numbers of pilot programs going on all over the country right now to do this very thing. I'm going to give you some examples of that today. Two, the government has to fix a very big problem that they have. Peak oil is real. Now, whether it looks like all the doomsdayers say it looks like or it looks like something entirely different and it just means really expensive fuel, it doesn't matter. Peak oil is real. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand in this country is that our government is very stupid with taxation in most instances. They tax people as high as they possibly can, believing that will give them more revenue. But with motor fuels taxes, they've actually comprehended that it works the other way. That if they keep motor fuel taxes relatively low, so that fuel prices are low, everybody will get a car. Once you get a car, you're going to drive it. So, the the concept that if we had high taxes like Europe or Australia or any of these pablum puking crap that you hear from people, well, over in England, fuel is like $8 a liter, and, and we should just be happy that we only pay 5 bucks for a gallon and whatever, right? It, what those people do not understand is that those nations take in a lot less tax revenue than we do for motor, motor fuels consumption. Part of the reason we use so much of the world's oil is because it's so affordable for us to do so. And that's built an automobile-based economy. Now, you would think that, oh, well, all of this talk of green jobs and green energy and Obama's going to take us to the future of green energy and green jobs, that they would just applaud things like electric cars and higher mileage vehicles, how they're passing laws to force them to make higher mileage vehicles, that they would just love this. Well, they don't. They don't. You would think they would just get excited when people actually use their mass transit systems. No, no, they don't. Uh, They don't want that. They want you to get in your car and go somewhere and give them money in the form of motor fuels taxes. It's one of the biggest sources of revenue at the state and federal level. Well, what happens when gas is over $4 a gallon like it is now? People drive less and they get less money. See, unlike sales taxes, motor fuels taxes are not a percentage. They are a price per gallon. That's a fixed cost per gallon. To your local, sometimes there's a city-level gas tax, to a state, and to the feds. And that means that if you use 10 gallons instead of 20, they get half. Even if you pay twice as much, they get half. This problem's not going to go away. The only way to solve it is to switch from a tax on fuels to a tax on mileage. And once they do that, they can let all this new technology come because their money's protected. The technology exists, the pilot programs are in place, and it solves the problem for them permanently, and it makes the pain for us permanent. That's why I'm so sure. Let's talk a little bit about this. Right here. I have a. Uh, ran, this comes to me from Stephen. Stephen says, ran across this article. In my state, considering a flat tax for electric cars. Oregon considering a mileage tax. Not that I have an electric car, but just pointing out since I really recently heard you talking about this happening sooner or later. So we have a little link to an article on Yahoo about electric cars. Let me read just a little bit of it to you. And this is how we're going to soft sell it first. Drivers of electric cars may have left the gas pump behind, but there's one expense they may not be able to shake, paying to maintain the roads. After years of urging urging residents to buy fuel-efficient cars and giving them tax breaks to do it, Washington state lawmakers are considering a measure to charge them a $100 annual fee, what would be the nation's first electric car fee. So, basically, you're just going to pay more to register your electric car here. Electric vehicles put just as much wear and tear on the roads as gas vehicles, said Democratic Senator Mary Margaret Hogan, the bill's lead sponsor. This simply ensures that they contribute their fair share to upkeep of the roads. Because it's not like they tax electricity. Oh, wait, they do tax electricity. Huh. So, they're just going to charge you more to register your electric vehicle. That's that's not a road tax, Jack. We'll open a link to the entire article so that you can read it. Um, but I also wanted to read to you this one. This is going on in the state of Minnesota. This was sent to us by Chris. All of this stuff came in in the last couple days, by the way, folks. Um, there, there's a real push for this. It's just everybody trying to float ideas to how to do it. Now, see, the electric car buyer is going to be most receptive to allowing this tax to take place. I mean, that's the reality here. Uh, there 's a video with this. Let me just read this to you. Should drivers pay by the mile instead of the gallon it 's a question the state will study and If you live in Hennepin or Wright County, you can help m dot uh, MnDOT, or how to MNDOT is looking for five hundred volunteers to test technology that will record mileage and other information when they drive to see if charging a fee per mile makes more sense than charging a tax on gas. Translation they want to know. When gas goes up another $2 a gallon, will they get more money by doing it that way? That's what the translation to that is. Can they sell you that today you'll pay less, knowing that tomorrow they'll get more? That's what this is all. This is the biggest sales job in history because it's going to affect everybody. They're going to try to get people to buy into this as a good thing. Eventually, when they get enough infrastructure in place, they're going to offer a swap. We will remove the motor fuel tax. There will be none, or it will be it will be reduced to a scant of what it was, but you're going to pay by the mile, and you're going to pay less, and we can make this work with cost savings because it will cost us less to collect it, so since it costs us less to collect it, we can charge you less and get the same amount of money. And they know that long term they can change those rates whenever they want very, very easily. As more people switch to hybrid electric cars, they're using less gas. Since gas tax helps pay for road maintenance, the state says it's looking for a $50 billion budget sh- looking at a $50 billion budget shortfall over the next 20 years. The state of Oregon did a similar study five years ago. How did Jack already know about this? Because it always starts in Oregon when it's crap like this. And the bill is now moving through the legislature that would impose a mileage fee on electric cars. The study will start in July, and the state decides to use mileage fees. MDOT says they wouldn't go into effect uh, for another 10 or 20 years. Hmm, unless, Unless we are really in a bad state of affairs and they need to move this a little quicker. I'm telling you, within five years... New roads that look like toll roads that aren't toll roads will be common. The 10 to 20 year timeline is 100% penetration to the state highways, the federal highways, and the major city roads. I'm talking everything except the roads in the, uh, the suburbs and stuff like that. Every road you drive on everywhere is going to have some kind of tracking mechanism placed on it. See, they don't have to do it every nine feet, right? If you have like a county road, you say, well, man, there's just no way they can do that out here. It's, it's too far away. It takes very little energy to run an RFID scanner, very, very little. And uh, you could set if you have the road goes for 20 miles before there's a place to turn off, well, then you have... A sensor at one point, a sensor, you know, maybe at five miles, and then ten, and then twenty, and that covers that twenty miles just fine. If the person turns around and comes back, oh, the computer automatically charges them based on a minimum usage fee for the road. Isn't this all wonderful? This is what's coming, folks. Uh, you can you can d- doubt it. You can think I'm crazy, but we can just read what's going on here. Um, Alan uh, sends me this one, just an article about hot lanes here in Seattle. They don't make any money and they're putting more in. So they have these hot lanes in Seattle that are a soft sell of how to uh, to get this, except Alan's link doesn't work. But let me just comment on the hot lane concept, because it's another way that they can sell this to you. What they want to do, and they're, they're looking at doing this in Dallas, Fort Worth area now as well. Instead of having those nasty HOV lanes that nobody really uses and don't really make an impact on traffic, let's take lanes that could be HOV lanes and let's create express lanes. And Anybody can go in there, but you'll need a toll tag or easy pass. Or if you don't have one, they'll just use what they call zip cash now, which means they take a picture of your license plate, they can see who you are by that, and then they charge you by sending you a bill in the mail. Isn't that great? And you can get in the fast lane and go faster, but it's optional, and you only do it if you want to. Isn't that great? See, these are all ways. These are all programs that lead to a common denominator. Now, let me read you something from somebody, and I might sound a little bit insulting when I talk to... uh, about this guy, but I'm trying not to be. I'm just gonna, I, you know, I have to say things the way I say it, uh, the way I see it. Let me read to you. This is from Jason. Jason says, "I was listening to you talk about the toll tax, and while I think you're right about how it will be implemented, I disagree with your political interpretation of it." For years, I've been hearing libertarians saying that the road taxes should be replaced by usage fees. That's exactly what this is. Anyone who doesn't want to pay the road usage fee is free to rearrange their lives so they don't have to drive so much or choose to drive on state roads where the trip will take longer but cost less. I'm one of your listeners who disagrees with you on a lot of political issues. I'm a big tree-hugging lefty liberal, but I still find a lot of value in the prepping information you provide. I just take what I can and use, and I leave the rest behind. Keep up the great work, Jason. Jason, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for being open-minded enough to... Uh, to, to, to get some good out of the show even though that we are night and day on economic issues social issues, social political issues we're probably very much the same on where all my conservative listeners would get upset with me so we don't disagree on everything politically but, see, the problem is you are a lefty liberal by your own admission and that means that your mind doesn't understand certain things about economics because if, they, if you did you couldn't possibly have this position first of all you don't even understand the libertarian principle that you're talking about, which is usage fees. Yes, but who do they get paid to? Private companies that have to maintain the roads and compete for the traffic. Okay? Um, and then here's where I split with my purest libertarians. I actually think, believe it or not, I think that one of the things that our government should actually freaking be responsible for at uh, the state. And the federal level is the highway and road system and the infrastructure and the bridges and everything else. I think that is a good public work system that has unfortunately been massively pilfered and plenty of the money has been there to keep the infrastructure where it needs to be has been diverted elsewhere. See, that's why they want these mileage taxes, Jason. It's not to maintain the ridges and the roads and everything else. Yes, they want some of it for that, but they also like a great big slush fund that they can pilfer to pay for all your lefty liberal programs like paying people not to work. Right And stealing money from rich people to give it to poor people. See, this is the problem with the the truly economically liberal mind. You actually believe it is acceptable to take from someone who worked hard for something and give a portion of it against that person's will to another person who didn't work hard. You actually believe it's okay to punish success by redistributing said success to other people. You actually think it's okay to take a child who studies their ass off and gets an A in every subject and then take another kid who could get A's but doesn't want to work hard enough for A's who got straight C's and take away one GPA point from the A student, give it to the C student so everybody can get a B because a B's good enough. And of course, if you actually ask one of you people if you would want to do that, um, in in a, a, a situation uh, where it was really done in the school system, you would say, oh, don't be stupid. That's preposterous. But there's no difference in stealing part of a GPA and giving it to another student who didn't work as hard as there is in taking my income and giving it to somebody who sits around their ass and does nothing. I got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but... You know, it's just when I hear from people that actually think that that these things are good ideas, I actually have to say, have you ever actually considered what happens when we do that? Or have you ever looked at everything that big government has done? I'm going to let it go there. I just wanted you guys to get really in touch with this. Now I want to move on to something else that a lot of people are sending me. I've got tons of stuff on this, but I'm only going to talk about one person, uh, use one link about it. And then I'm going to play you a video of exactly what this guy's talking about. So here's the, uh, the email. It comes from Richard, and Richard says, OMFG, and you guys can figure out for yourself what that means. I won't use certain words on the, uh, the air, but I, I do get the sentiment here, and when I read it to you, it'll make sense. This is insane. Meat glue? Just one more reason to grow as much of your own food as possible. This is the first time I've heard about this practice. Now, I can't enjoy a store or restaurant bought uh, medium-rare steak, What is your take on this? And uh, Richard, Uh, Richard, before I give you my take on this, what I'm going to actually do is I've stripped the audio out from one of the videos about this, and I'm going to play that. And I'm going to let everybody hear exactly the skinny behind this thing. What is meat glue and what are they doing with it? And then, and then I'm going to come back and is, I've gotten probably 50 emails about this. It's been on the Facebook page. I actually put it out on Twitter and Facebook like three weeks ago. Uh, but now it just seems like it's actually hitting to a point where it's getting viral and people are finding out it. And everybody's disgusted about this. So listen to this. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to... Give you something that's, in my opinion, far more disgusting and far more prevalent and far more likely to be affecting the food that you're eating right now. And uh, I want to see if everybody's so grossed about this meat glue, how do you feel about the second thing? So here we go. This is a report from Australia on meat glue. And when they say about it being banned overseas, that's not the United States, folks. We do this right here. Here we go. The industry-wide secret butchers don't want you to know about. Major suppliers have been caught using a special product known as meat glue to stick together scraps of meat to sell as prime cuts. But while this product has been banned overseas, there's no law prohibiting its use here. Here's Rodney Lowe's with this special investigation.
2: It's the meat industry's dirty secret. A way of turning the scraps too small to sell as a premium steak back into a juicy plump eye fillet to sell for a premium price. So clever, you'll never tell. Not even an expert can. Before, you didn't even pick that as a joint, though, did you? It
0: doesn't even tear through the joint. Bit hard to tell, isn't it?
2: Butcher James Faulkner runs Queensland Natural Beef Company an organisation dedicated to using as few additives in meat from paddock to plate as possible. But tonight, he's exposing how some parts of the industry are able to trick their customers and use whatever it takes.
0: I've just got some uh, fine diced diced beef and my uh, special enzyme. I'm just going to mix it up a bit.
2: Why have we got the masks on?
0: This is dangerous. (laughs) See that? Don't breathe that in.
2: This powder is transglutanamase enzyme, otherwise known as meat glue. Meat glues come in a number of forms, some produced by cultivating bacteria, the others, the primary ingredient comes from the blood plasma of pigs and cattle, specifically the coagulant which causes blood to clot. In the food industry, it has amazing properties.
0: So let's get a little bit here, about a teaspoonful. Just over the top like that, and with our gloves on, of course, we mix it up.
2: Then roll it in plastic film and refrigerate. Six hours later, you have a solid piece of meat. Essentially, you've got a reborn, rebirth thigh fillet. More or less, yeah. Ours uncooked is easy to spot the difference, but cooked is another story. Okay, so the uh, meat glue one is on the right, and the real McCoy is on the left. And it's not just beef. Pork, lamb, fish and chicken are all stuck back together using this glue. It looks like one piece of chicken. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yep. But hard to tell, isn't it? Particularly that. On the grill, it's even harder to pick. So that's the real McCoy. Give this a burl. It's nice and tender, nicely salted. All right, let's go for the meat glue. Can't tell the difference. Pretty good, but potentially dangerous.
1: I've sort of got two concerns. One that is well publicised,
3: which is misleading people. The other area is the microbial side.
2: It's why the European Union moved to ban meat glue in May last year. Microbiologist Glenn Pinner.
1: If this food is sold or represented as a solid piece of steak, And you cook it rare, you're really leaving yourself open um, to get food poisoning.
2: Once you glue two pieces together, it's difficult to cook thoroughly those parts that were on the outside but are now on the inside.
1: The amount of bacteria on a steak that has been put together with meat glue is hundreds of times higher.
2: We had no idea how guarded a secret this was until we started contacting restaurateurs and butchers to ask them about the use of meat glue. Many of them didn't want to speak for fear of upsetting their suppliers, creating bad blood in an industry that has become very clever at using this product. Are you just shaking your head? (laughs) A little bit. It's unbelievable, isn't it? This cube roll we bought from a wholesaler that produces stuck-together steaks en masse their efforts so good James our butcher couldn't tell even when it was raw it's even harder in the restaurant which are some of the biggest users of glued meat and chances are unless you're a vegetarian you're eating it on a regular basis but with current labeling laws neither butchers nor your local eatery have to tell you you're eating chicken glued together with cow's blood or beef held together by pig it's the same reason they can take low-grade meat and pump it with water and flavour to make it edible. OK, so just after about a minute or two, we've got quite a lot of moisture out of there. And we've lost almost half a kilo. Then the practice of selling mutton as lamb and old cow as prime cut beef, like this. So old, a meat grater said it was only good for pet mitts.
0: You've got yellow fat colour, really dark meat colour, It's definitely off a really old type of animal.
2: In New South Wales, new labelling regulations have just been introduced to help consumers choose quality meat, but it's not compulsory. So for most of us, picking a quality piece of meat is still a shot in
1: the dark. I have to say that's pretty disgusting. It really is. And I, I hope you really understand what the guy was talking about when he was discussing the fact that you, the, the, both the commenter and then the story about not being able to eat steak medium rare or medium well or things like that, not fully cooked. When you take a piece of steak, a solid piece of steak, and you make a cut, and let's say you have a great big beautiful uh, ribeye, ro- rib roast, and you cut a ribeye steak off it, you cut two nice ribeye steaks off that. The outer portions of that meat have been exposed to the air and different bacteria that can do certain things on meat that you really don't want done. But the inner meat is actually protected, and that is a big reason of why it's safe to eat that meat, you know, medium. For, for instance, are rare because the outside gets seared and cooked and anything that's contaminated, that gets killed by the heat and the center portion has been protected. We know that it hasn't come into contact with things like you know uh, the, 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 uh, the internal organs or things like that that maybe aren't fully clean or uh, been in, handled improperly or something like that. We know it's safe because it's basically protected itself. So when we start taking all these different pieces of meat and gluing it back together, many of the parts of the meat that were on the outside and possibly exposed to these things are now on the inside. And then there's the whole, like, fairness in, in consumerism thing, right? I mean, if I'm going out and buying an Eiffelette, I should be getting an fillet, not a bunch of ass meat glued back together. And that's what you're getting, folks, right? Uh, but everybody's up in arms about taking, basically, blood coagulant and using it to glue chicken and pork and veal. And you get your little thing about they're you know, basically injecting mutton and selling it as lamb. So they take this old-ass sheep and they, they, they flavor up the meat a bit, and tenderize it and sell it to you as a piece of lamb when it should be given to dogs. Um, but as gross as all this is, and as, as upsetting as it is, I want to play something for you now that came from last week's, or maybe it was this week's uh, edition of Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. I keep telling you guys to tune into this and listen to what he's saying. I want you to hear about something called pink, pink slime that makes up to 15% of 70% of ground meat and ground meat products in the United States. Again, it makes up to 15%, It's like a filler, for 15% of your meat, all your ground meat, and it's in over 70% of the ground meat purchased and consumed in America today. I want you to hear how they make it, so listen to this. <clears throat>
3: This is a retail value for those areas. Fillets, sirloins, ribeyes. The public loved seeing that, that, equal in a steak. They never for a minute thought I would clear all the meat and cuts away and introduce them into a new world of food. It's called pink slime. So guys, why am I doing all this? Did you come here for a meat lesson today? No. When you've broken down a whole beast, you're left with trimmings. You know, in my industry, we call those trimmings... Get rid
1: of... All the
3: bits that no one wants. The bits of sinew, the bits of meat, the bits that can't be turned into a cup. You're a vegetarian, aren't you, love? Yeah, sorry. You know, the butcher. Dan, you pay to get this taken away, yeah? Yes. In this form, this is inedible. Why? Because it's the outside of the meat, from the cavity where the guts are. It's full of anything from salmonella, E. coli, and different stuff like that. Tell these people where the tune goes. It uh, goes to a rendering plant where they make chicken food, dog food. Okay, this is not fit for human consumption. Why is it good for dog food? Because dogs have got more efficient stomachs, they can handle this stuff. But what would you think if I told you, in America, they've come up with a piece of technology that can turn this into something that ends up in your school food. Pink slime is allowed in any school in America, by the USDA. So, first things first, this is how I imagine the process to be. Over here, I have uh, something that you probably know well. They don't really put it in a a washing machine, but they take all those trimmings, all the stuff that Dan pays to get taken away, they put it into a centrifuge, and they spin it. Now, what does that do? It splits the fat from the meat and separates it. So then you end up with stuff like this. I want you to have a look at this. It's important that you kind of see this stuff. (laughs) Then you end up with all the very, very last bits of meat. So what they do is fascinating, and to me as a chef and a food lover is shocking. You've probably got one of these cupboards probably under the sink with a child lock, And in there is gonna be all your household chemicals, stuff that you don't want your kids getting their hands on. The key ingredient of the process is ammonia. We're going to wash these lean bits of beef that we've spun around there in a water and ammonia solution. I don't know how much and the water. There's a specific ratio, but basically they wash this meat and that kills the E. coli and the salmonella and any kind of pathogens. So then we drain it. We drain it and then we mince it. So basically, we're taking a product that would be sold at the cheapest form for dogs. And after this process, we can give it to humans. this for me, my friend. Hamburgers, chilies, chopped steaks, tacos. I haven't got anything against a burger. I eat them and I love them. What I have a problem is, is what is inside it. Where did it come from? Look familiar now? Okay, lovely people, if you've got a pile of regular ground meat and you want it to stretch further, you're allowed up to 15% of this product in any patty, in any mincemeat. So basically what I'm telling you is it's it's a thinner. Can you imagine how happy an accountant is? You've just turned dog food into potentially your kid's food. The other thing is the USDA who are employed to protect you people have made it legal to not have to register on any form of labelling the ammonia they say that it's a process not an ingredient and they publicly say pink slime is safe to eat you know this is a practice that is openly sort of admitted to being in at least 70 percent of ground beef products that kind of puts it everywhere so dan you've been butchering for 50 years how did you feel about that Uh, i don't like it the thing is guys the supporters of this product would say it's safe and efficient but everything about this process, to me, is about no respect for food, or people, or children. And I would want to know when I'm eating this stuff, and I want it clearly labelled. And at the moment, there's nothing on your labelling that would let you know that you are eating this stuff. Now, does that make you feel protected? No. Do you feel that any part of this clever, scientific process involves any respect? No. Do you want it fed to your children? No. Normally, when I highlight something, my job is to give you a solution. The only solution I can give you is the only way you can use ground beef is by watching the butcher grind it in front of you, which they will do. But that's a real pain in the backside. Thank you, and uh, stick up for me, guys. I need, I need, I need your help at the moment. I think it went pretty damn good. To-
1: Okay, now I'm sorry, but give me meat glue over that crap any day. You're taking the leavings that would generally be used to make dog food, okay? And and you're going to give it, you're going to put it in a centrifuge and squeeze out the blood and remaining meat. Because the blood's going there too. That's why it's called slime. And you're going to wash it in ammonia, because you don't want to give me E. Coli or something like that, God forbid, right? So you're going to wash it in ammonia, and you're going to treat it with chemicals to firm it up, and then you're going to grind it so it looks like ground meat, and you're going to mix that into my my ground sirloin. Really, that's what you're going to do? That's and you know those big giant tubes of hamburger meat that are dirt cheap, that are like you know you know you can't even see the meat that's inside of them; it's just like a big log of meat. Uh, they're probably the worst offenders for stuff like that. I guarantee you when your kids go eat any kind of a meat product in their school lunches, made with ground meat, tacos, chili, stuff like Jamie was saying, Uh, they're, they're eating this crap, right? But here's the dangerous thing. When you go to the store and you think you're buying nice, good quality meat and you're buying you know like 85, 15 fat ratio meat for making burgers on the grill, odds are you're getting this crap too. And I think what Jamie said, and this is what my dad used to do and I used to think he was a little bit nutty and I'm sure it had... Very little to do with this. He just thought he got a better quality meat, and I guess he did. He would go find great big roasts when they were on a sale as cheap as possible, like chuck roasts and things like that. And he would take it right back to the, uh, to the, the, the you know, the meat cutter guy at the, at the, uh, store and say, I want you to grind this up. And he would get all his meat that way. Big old eye roasts and things like that. And the guys would always get upset that he wanted them to grind the stuff up. He said, I'm paying for it. I'm paying the same price for it. Throw that shit in the grinder and grind it for me. And basically, what I've just heard here tells me that the only way that you can be sure that you're not eating pink slime when you grill up burgers for your buddies is for you to do something like that. And it pretty much, all those like, you know, the, the preformed patties, that pretty much knocks that out, doesn't it? You don't really want that anymore, do you? Now, if you think this is all okay, if you think it's okay, to spit out meat leavings that you know were in contact with internal uh, organs that were busted open and had E. coli. You know they know there was E. coli in there. That's why they that's why they bathed in ammonia to kill it. So if you think it's okay to do this, fine. But I, I wanted you to know about this, and this is why I think that if you're a listener to me, I'd like you to do me a favor and I'd like to get you to give this guy's show a shot. I-, I feel so almost embarrassed that it takes a man from the UK to come over here. And point out what we're feeding our own children. But this guy needs as much support as he can get. If he's willing to come here to do it, maybe we can get behind him. So uh, that's I, I want to leave that subject now and go on to some other things. I do have some positive stuff to talk about today. And uh, a bunch of interesting questions. Here's a, here's an interesting one, and I'll do the best I can with it. As a long-time listener, I can say that your shows are so packed with great information, that makes my head explode. Here's my dilemma. The economic climate is looking more and more ominous of late, and I'm beginning to consider moving all my investments into cash. With the exception of a few hundred ounces of silver and my emergency fund, the rest of my investments are locked up in a 401K. Two questions. How close do you feel that we are to another stock market meltdown, and will you let us know if you feel that it is here? And two, what is your opinion on investing in tips as one of my investment options? I know you're not an investment advisor, but your input would be appreciated. Thanks for a great show, Todd from Wisconsin. Well, Todd, great question. Let me see what I can do with both of those. Well, let's talk about the market and what phase it's in based on what I started talking about back in 2008. I said that this this whole concept of the 2008 crash was the crash to end all was nonsense, that there would be a false recovery and a significant false recovery, if not in the, the general economy of the nation itself, in the market and in the investment sector. The money would flood in to take advantage, and it would drive things up, and some other things would go on. And I said that by mid-2011 that the Dow would be back around 12500 uh, I said that multiple times. Anybody that doubts that can go li- listen to the older episodes, especially from uh, the, the fall of 2008 when the market was literally falling. As it was falling, I kept saying, it will bottom, and it's going to go back, and this is kind of where it's going to go. And I talked a lot about that in economic shows in 2009 as well. Well, today the Dow is at 12465 And it did close above 12.5, so I got my top. I called that as at least where it would get back to, and it did get back there on April 21st. So you might say, well, since we've hit that, it's time for free fall again, and this is time to bail out. The answer is I don't know. I don't know. It's not as easy to pick this time around. There were Basically, it was a freight train last time. There's a question on that that I'm going to answer either later today or later this week. So I won't talk about how I knew it was coming so much with, with this answer. But the answer is if I believe it, if it's enough to make me bail on everything I'm holding, I will tell you. I'm also telling you don't wait till I tell you to. Uh, if you feel it's time to do it, then you need to act. I'm actually getting to a point where I think that the next year and a half are going to look really good. I think that we're going to see a continuing upbeat. I think what's going to happen is Congress is going to raise the debt ceiling. And even even if you oppose that vehemently, please watch my video on why they're going to do it, and why they have no choice. In our current economic system, every single dollar is a certificate for debt. The debt must continue to rise. That's how it works. No matter what they do on cutting spending, no matter what they do on taxing people, I don't care what the government does. In the end, the debt ceiling must go up because the quantity of money for the quantitative easing to keep working must increase. And as the money increases, the debt must coincidentally increase. That's how the money works. So I think that gets done, and I think that there's some relevant agreement uh, is what will, the, the term they'll use, and this is going to start to to make people feel like the U.S. is getting a little bit more serious about reducing the deficit, which is going to be complete nonsense. At the same time, we are now seeing inflation at levels we've never seen uh, since this whole thing started. We are seeing gas and, and it hit you know four bucks. It's going to hit five. Obama said it's going to hit five. Get used to it. Uh, In a time where uh, the major oil producers are saying, there's no shortage, we're not even going to make any more for you. You, 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 Take what you get. Uh, Now, what happens when the energy price goes up to a level like that and stays up there? It starts to drive the cost of everything up. Well, that creates true inflation. It's felt in the food and the commodity sectors all over the place. So the commodity sectors begin to boom even more than they have before corporations that have leaned out are now in a much better state to take advantage of these increased prices and pull more of the profit into their own companies. Now, if they make you know a dollar on something versus 50 cents, it's really the same money because the money has been devalued so much. Not to that extreme, and I'm trying to make it easy for you to understand, but when they come out with an earnings report, it looks even better than it ever did before. And all of a sudden, more and more confidence goes back. Well, the economy might suck, but the market's good. So more investor money goes into the market. As that cash flow in- increases, some of these companies realize now we have to take some of the surplus money and either be taxed on it or invest it. And one investment we can make is human beings. So they start to hire again. They hire smarter. And the unemployment will take a dip. And this is, this is all seat-of-my-pants stuff here, guessing here. Um, but as that in dip happens a little bit more and more confidence, the band plays. Maybe we see the Dow break 13,500 or 14,000 before the end falls out. Here's the thing I don't know what's going to cause the next collapse. We have to stay alert and we have to stay aware. We have to pay attention to what's going on. There were so many things coming last time. Uh, but, when it comes to like the housing market, the, the biggest part of that 's washed now there 's another big bubble coming there, but it's it 's a rounding error, as Mike Gazer would say against the whole um, the, the phony derivatives got their prop up the banks were stuffed with phony money um, that 's kind of plugged the unemployment thing is pandered out to what it's basically going to be for now most companies that are still in business can't really afford to lay a lot more people off here and there the common numbers for layoffs which aggravates an existing high unemployment number but doesn't continue to grow all of these things spell stupid uh, the stupid uh, American uh, how do I put this the the stupid American mentality that as long as things look like they're getting better they're okay and we've been conditioned to believe that that the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S and P 500, are the and the gas price are the president's scorecard. So if we get those to go up, the president gets an A at the S and P 500. We get to get a get an A on the uh, on the Dow Jones in the mind of the of the sheeple. And then on the gas price, yeah, they're pissed off, but he got two A's and a D, so that's better than what they expected. So this is the attempt than to get Obama reelected, and a lot of this again a lot of the stimulus money is pouring into the economy right now and it's been held until now and the Republicans said that they would come get rid of it this half that hadn't been spent yet and it's, they, they got rid of nothing so it's all dumping in in 2011 you're going to see in my best guess what looks like a major recovery from here And eventually, I don't know if it's going to be defaulting on the debt. I don't know if it's going to be something we're not even aware of yet. Something is going to slam into this on the other side. And it may simply be energy prices continuing to go up at a rate that we don't have enough alternative technology being developed fast enough to address. But at some point, something's going to slam the brakes on this. And when it happens this time, it's going to make the last slide look like a joke. When it goes down this time, it's going to be worse, and it's going to stay there longer than ever before. Does that mean there's no hope for America's economy? No, it just means that something really bad's coming. Um, again, I'll talk more about how I knew the first time in a minute. But right now, I can tell you that we have a lot of potential for a major, you know, like monopoly money phony upside. And we have a lot of potential for anywhere along the timeline I just gave you for me to be wrong and something to slam into us sideways and derail the train. But here's the dangerous thing. The better it looks like it's getting, the faster the train's going down the tracks, the worse the derailment will be. So there's my answer on that. I'll tell you what I know. I don't see it right now, but it could be tomorrow. All right, I really don't know. It's not as clear to me as it was last time. I have a lot of people I respect that completely disagree with me um, on any more recovery? that it's basically we've had it out. Gazer would say that. Mike would say, Jack, you're wrong. But he also told me I was wrong a year and a half ago. So I'm having more confidence in my own projections because everything's happened the way that I said it would so far. But there's so many unknown variables that are buried beneath the the, the Ponzi schemes right now. We just really have to keep a, a lid on it. I can tell you this. The energy price can only go so far before it becomes a cap on the economy. That, that's just a flat-out reality. F- can we handle 5 bucks with all the adjustments people have made and all of the new fuel-efficient cars and all? Probably. Can we handle 6 I don't think so. Can we, you know, I mean, it, I just talked to a lady that said that I, I, I filled up my truck, my F-350, and it wasn't quite empty, and I put $101 worth of diesel fuel in it. And I said, I can't imagine what these big rigs are putting in. She said, we had a guy yesterday that did over $900 to fill up his rig. You know, it, it, can he can he make money at that rate? I don't know. You know, and how long can we hold back? So the commodity prices, the food prices, everything that gets in a truck to go somewhere has got to rise. How far can it rise before it totally flattens the economy? I don't know. That's the thing we have to keep an eye on. As far as tips, I, I've talked about them before. Let me give you guys the simplified explanation so my advice makes sense. A tip is um, is basically an, an insured product. It's... It stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And basically, the way, let's, let's just talk about the way a basic treasury bond works. If you go buy a bond, uh, the treasury says, we're going to issue, a, let's do it real, real simple so the numbers make sense. This will never happen, though. Uh, let's say the treasury says, I'm going to sell a $100 bond for one year. How much will you pay? And then people bid. And that sets the price. And then consumers go in and buy based on the most current bid. And it, you know, the Japanese come and say, we'll give you $95 for every $100 bond of one year. Well, that would be a 5% interest rate. They pay 95, they get 100 at maturity. That's where the interest rate comes from. But usually we're looking more at like 3-, 4-, 5-year rates, 7-year rates, 10-year rates, things like that. Um, and it's whatever people will pay whatever the market will pay or the fed steps in and does it right with, with voodoo with voodoo numbers in a computer it's not even real money they buy their own debt like on wheel of fortune where you buy a vowel that you buy nothing with nothing and get something that's what it is when the fed does it a tips inflation protected security works kind of the same way but people will pay more for them they might you might go out and buy, have to pay $100 for a $100 tip in, uh, $100 tip bond why? Because the tip bond will pay you uh, whichever is greater. Your, the, 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 the base interest rate, which in my example, $100 for $100 is zero. Or they will you know, guarantee your principal back basically at that point. Or if inflation, according to not, not, not core inflation, but the CPI, which, which takes energy and food out, Right? the CPI, whatever the CPI uh, rate is, they'll pay you that. So if over this year the CPI on inflation was 3%, it'll pay you 3%. If you bought the bond for $95, it'll pay you back your total principal, the face value of the bond plus the CPI. So just about, I'd say six months ago, I brought a story to you where investors for the first time in history were buying the $100 tips bond for, let's say, $101. They were paying 1% more. Now, this is not on a one-year bond, but on the longer-term bonds, the four-, five-, and seven-year bonds. They were actually paying more for the bond. So that means, like, you as a consumer, that you're, you know, small change compared to, like, the nation of China buying them or or Brazil or some billionaire buying them in these auctions um, or the Fed, you know, shifting them around. When you buy them, you pay a little bit more than they do. And for the first time in history, people were willing to pay more for the bond than the face value for a tip because they believed the inflation would outstrip the interest rate the conventional bond was paying. That's what the big investor community sees coming with inflation. So my thoughts on these, ah, they're okay. They're okay for a part of your, your, your holdings. The big problem with tips or security bonds or stocks or cash or anything is you're holding everything in U.S. dollars. And that's why I like some of that money going into silver. Since it sounds like you're doing some of that, you know, it's okay. Um, You are locking your money because if you sell short, term into the bond you're not going to get the full value for the bond uh, and you could actually lose money with a tip that way um, if you hold till maturity you're going to get at least your principal back and the way inflation's going you 'll probably be decent on your return I, I, I'm kind of neutral on them I don't own any myself but I wouldn't really uh, hamper anybody else for owning them but that 's what a tip is uh, those are my uh, my thoughts on them uh, the next one is an article from Jason and Jason says uh, Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa signed an agreement to use their own currencies instead of the predominant U.S. dollar uh, in issuing credit and grants to each other. So let me read a little bit of that article to you. I I don't want to read the whole article. You can do that on your own. I want to read the part that kind of mitigates this a little bit, and then I want to explain to you what it means on a larger scale. Um, Our designated banks have signed a framework agreement on financial cooperation, which envisages a grant of credit. And local currencies in cooperation in capital markets and other financial services, Mammoth Singh told reporters at a news conference with other uh, BRICS leaders. Uh, But the agreement is confined to credit and not trade. BRICS economies hold 40% of the world's currency reserves, the majority of which is still in U.S. dollars. So Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa hold 40% of the world's dollars. Let's say that again. They hold 40% of the world's U.S. dollars. I thought we had all the money. And they hold most of it in debt instruments, U.S. Treasury bonds. Okay, Uh, The BRICS summit is being held in the coastal city of Sanya in China's Hanan Island. A joint presser was held after the leaders held deliberations on international situations, financial development, climate and security issues. Uh, If you want to read the whole thing, you can. It's not that long, an article. But let me just kind of tell you what basically this means. In general, any time any kind of international commerce takes place, it happens in U.S. dollars. So if China wants to buy a bunch of suntan lotion from Brazil, they take their Chinese currency, they convert it to dollars... And then they pay the Brazilians in dollars, and the Brazilians take the dollars. And if they want to change it into, I guess it's the real, uh, the real, whatever the, the Brazilian currency is, they have to convert it back. So there's a certain uh, cost of doing business outside of just the two currencies exchange, the dollars in the middle. This is a tremendous advantage for the United States because we don't have to convert our dollars to buy our stuff. When we go buy oil, we use dollars to buy oil, where when the Brazilians have to buy oil, and they don't have to buy a lot because they have a lot of energy independence. A bad example, let's say the Indians need to buy oil. They have to take the rupee, and they have to convert it to dollars first. So we can effectively get a better deal on oil than they can. Makes sense? Pretty simple. But the thing is that they basically haven't created a thing where they're going to be doing that with each other yet. So if Brazil's buying something from China or China's buying something from Brazil, they're not going to stop doing that conversion to dollars yet. What they're going to do is they issue each other credit. (laughs) Well, if you think about issuing credit, that allows people to do trade. So basically the Chinese can issue a credit to the Brazilians using their own currency exchange ratio and then take delivery of goods based on the credit that exists. So it's a step in the direction of opening up international trade independent of the dollar and making it dependent on something else. And these nations coming together and saying, our currency basket is a much more stable implement uh, than this this debt-backed mess that the U.S. has. In fact, we're holding all their debt. Right, So since we're holding their net, if you want them, come to us. We have them plus we have our commodities. We have our value. And, and this is much more fair for the world. Why should one nation hold the rest of the nation hostage? Not even if they're completely wrong. But what it says is the day of the dollar is dying, folks. And what that means for everybody, I said this in a show recently, is moving down a peg, moving down a level uh, when it comes to your class, it's, it's the upper middle class moving to the middle class. It's the middle class moving to the lower middle class. It's the lower middle class moving below uh, the poverty threshold. And it's the impoverished not going anywhere, staying right where they are just like they always have because the government will keep them there as long as they can anywhere until such a day that people begin to default with dollars and the whole thing tears apart and we have to build a new currency system. And then things, we don't know what they're going to look like. They could look like, you know, there's a 1 in a 1,000 chance they look like Patriots to the Coming Collapse. Uh, there's probably a 1 in 10 chance that they look worse than the Great Depression, but nowhere near as bad as the first option. There's probably a 1 in 5 chance that they look almost exactly like the Great Depression, except with modern technology and things like that. And there's probably a 1 in 3 chance that they look like something between the 1970s and the Great Depression. Similar to what we have now, but worse. And and then, you know, everything, we hit a reset button. And what happens then is money, property, everything you own gets devalued and sucked back up by the international banking cartel that is the Federal Reserve. That's our future. This is just one indicator of the rest of the world getting themselves into a position to not be told. See, we're going to take them down with us. But they're trying to put out enough life preservers and boats that they can float higher than us when the ship goes down. And we don't drag them down into the abyss. And if you think about this, back in 2008, 2009, I said this again about the false recovery and the current collapse and all. We would not go down then. The rest of the world would not allow it because they were too tethered to us. That they would work over the next several years to a point where they could float on their own. And when they did, and they decoupled from us, then the next time we were in trouble they'd say, Hey, you guys are the big bullies on the block. You guys rule the whole world. You guys use a quarter of the world's resources. See ya. You're on your own. Swim or sink. And that's exactly where we're headed. And that's why I have so much fear over the economy in the long term. And that's why I have so much belief that we got one more big bubble so that all of these 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 filthy rich pricks can take one more big slot off the table. As they're moving their money, and where are the billionaires putting their money right now? They're putting, them in Asia, they're putting their money in Asia. Jim Rogers is having his kids learn Mandarin. Right? I mean, that's a multi, multi billionaire moving his money to Asia, teaching his kids Chinese, and buying property and investing in that part of the world. Why? Because they've raped this one, that's where the development is, and they're going there to rape that one. The, 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 these emerging economies think this is all great. And they will as they experience 1950s America. But we know what came after 1950s America, 1970s America. And then a restart. And then 1980s America. And then a restart. And they raped it all the way through. That's what's about to happen there now. All right, let's take another one. Real quick one, what's your take on the Donald from Josh? Of course, Donald Trump, and he might run for president. One, I don't think Trump's serious. I don't think he wants to be president. I think it would cost him money to be president, and he's not in the business of uh, losing money. He's getting tremendous publicity from this. Uh, I, have, I, I feel about Trump like this. You know, I used to be a cons- consultant uh, to one of his companies, and I have this basket of tremendous respect, and I have another basket of the guy's just an ass clown. And I have those two conflicting feelings about him because some of the stuff he does, you just think you're an idiot. Uh, And This is not a guy I want as the commander-in-chief. Business-wise, I think he makes a lot of sense. But he doesn't understand or pretends not to understand the current United States economy. His answer to certain questions just show you that he's not capable of doing the job uh, in any real meaningful way. He was asked, "Well, what would you do about this deficit and not raising the debt ceiling? Where would you come?" He'd make deals. That's what he said. Oh, you got to go out and make deals with who?" He had no answer to "with who." There's nobody to make any deals with. He's not going to tell Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Well, those are you know, that's the third rail of politics. I understand that, but if you're going to be serious about business we've got to do something there that's where most of the money is being consumed now it's the entitlements is where the money's going and i don't want to throw all ladies out on the street but there are things that can be done to put cost saving into that and to protect the money that's going in there so it's spent there so it's not pilfered and used for other things but as long as we have you know there's no way to say you're not i wouldn't ever raise the debt ceiling well then you don't know how the economy works so i i think the guy is a joke is a uh, Absolutely a joke as a presidential candidate, and uh, my wife likes them, uh, but I don't think she gets some of the things that I'm telling you here right now. Um, here's another one. Uh, this is one I was holding off, and I've been uh, listening daily to you since before episode 100, great podcast. You recently mentioned again that you were in, there were signs the economy was going to crash in 2008. If I missed it, I apologize, but I don't think I've heard you uh, on your podcast or read on your site what those signs were. Can you give a plain nuts and bolt listing of signs uh, that we could have seen? I was still half asleep. I want to learn more so I can uh, bust the investment advisors uh, that come to my work and stroke me and say it will all be okay. Um, and this is from Hot Prepper OSU. So somebody from Oklahoma State, I guess. Um, well, I mean, the biggest sign was the housing mess that was beginning to emerge. When you started to look and you started to see the housing sales fall, you started to realize how many people were in debt they weren 't going to be able to pay, and you could see the real estate market about to crash. That was the big one once you understood that and you understood derivatives that were tied into it so i I, I did talk about all this in after episode one hundred so you must have not understood that 's what that 's what the cause was. There was a quadrillion dollars in derivatives out there and and, and you know when you have. This going to happen, then Freddie Mac, Fannie may have to crash. When Freddie Mac and Fannie may have to crash, their largest insurer, AIG, have to crash. So when you take those three out by themselves, then you start to look at investment banking firms and things like Bear Stearns have to go down. Well when Bear Stearns goes down, the, the investment banking community is dead. Nobody wants to that was all written on the wall. And it all came from these. This there's about to be a million plus people lose their their home because they can't pay their mortgages. And there were report after report after report after report that this was coming. And you also have to, whenever your economy is booming, there's almost always in a booming economy a bubble that's supporting the boom. And there might be all kinds of other things that look like they're part of the boom, but in the, if you had a big peak, you know. Inside that peak, there's a great big sphere that's making up the majority of that peak. And that peak this time was real estate. So whenever you're booming, say to yourself, why? What is the biggest driver of the current economic boom? In 2000, it was what? The internet explosion, right? But nobody had really figured out how to make money with it yet. So you knew that the bubble itself was fake, so when we got around to like we just started throwing money at people that couldn't afford houses, and you knew it. If you, if you had your eyes open, you knew that people were getting loans that couldn't pay them back. It was You could look at people that were moving in, and I don't need to put anybody down, but you could look at the house, and you could look at the people moving into it, you could look at the stuff they had, and you could look at the fact that three years after they bought the house, they hadn't planted a single tree or done a speck of landscaping, and, and the, 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 you know, that told you there was no money left. And you knew how many people were doing the adjustable rate mortgages. You knew when they adjusted, if they couldn't afford what they had before the adjustment, they couldn't afford after. And then you just had to understand that as the real estate market starts to fall apart, and there's a surplus of houses on the market, then a lot of other people that can afford their homes just barely and can still get by, their house values fall, and now they're trapped and they can't get out. Some portion of them will want to get out. When that portion of them wants to get out, some of them will abandon. This will further suppress the real estate market. And eventually people will come to the conclusion that walking away is financially smarter than staying put, even if they can afford their homes. All this is obvious if you're just looking for it. Here's the problem with that when it comes to what's going to happen next. It has absolutely nothing to do with the next bust other than look for the bubble. If we have the market a year from now at thirteen five fourteen thousand. At that point, to be driven that high, something has to be driving it. Look at that bubble. When you find a bubble, monitor it. And when everybody says that there's nothing wrong with the bubble, it's a good bubble, it's a beautiful bubble, buy into the bubble, get the hell out. Because the bubble's about to blow. When everybody said, yeah, this internet thing's real, buy Yahoo at $302 a share, we were a few months away from... Pop! when everybody said the real estate market is just going to keep going on forever get into it Freddie Mac Fannie Mae, good investments uh, Bear Stearns when Jim Cramer said you got nothing to worry about with Bear Stearns we were a week away from the whole implosion beginning when everybody says everything is great everything's okay and when everybody starts pointing to the bubble and calling the bubble good that's when you bail So the reason I can't say that look to the real estate market for the next pop is that bubble popped. Now we have to inflate it with something else. And this time what they're trying to inflate it with is pure money. That's all the quantitative easing is. So when everybody says quantitative easing worked, that's most likely when we're about to go off the edge of the cliff. Could something else come in and use all that money and make a new bubble? Yes, and if it does, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It will become more sustainable. It will last longer. It will get bigger, and it will hurt more people when it blows. But the other side of this slide is coming. It could be a year from now. It could be three years from now. I'm sorry I'm not an oracle. I can't do better than that. I can just tell you what to watch for. Uh, remember, I don't sell financial advice, so there's no incentive for me to try to mislead you about that. Uh, a couple quick ones here. Uh, Jack, I discovered the rainwater in our area in northwest Indiana has significantly higher amounts of sulfur, selenium, arsenic, and carbon than that of our local groundwater, so I'd be filtering it before watering plants. We live near several coal-fired industries, steel mills, foundries, and power plants, so I was curious to a sample to our municipal lab. I do not drink this water, so I'm safe-ish, but I would, li- would it be an issue for the plants? Um, What I think I'd I'd like you to do is, with your lab report, ask, is this dangerous levels? Just because it's there and it's higher than some other water doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous levels. Selenium and arsenic bother me, period. Um, But as far as filtering the water before you give it to your plants, what's the point? Because when it rains, all your plants get watered with the rainwater anyway. So I, I, I understand your concern. I share it. I think you need to do some more research about how high these levels really are, not relative to other water, but as far as, you know, get some independent lab your laboratory that did the water analysis for you and ask, you know, what are considered dangerous levels uh, for irrigation of crops? And if that's the case, then the whole state's got a big problem now, doesn't it? And that actually concerns me, and I can't say more on this right now because it's the first I've heard of something like this. Um, but that's something we need to look at, and we probably need to look at it nationally now, and, uh, maybe you're the spearhead of getting somebody looking into this, but as far as filtering water before you water your plants, again, since it rains directly on your plants all the time, I I just think that you're, you know, you're you're gonna get more irrigation. I I don't think it makes practical sense, even though it is a concern for me. Next one from uh, Ronnie. Ronnie says, Jack, what would happen if we all got fed up and quit giving our money to the criminals? What would happen if we all went into our employers and said, I do do not take any more taxes out of my check. Why do we continue to feed the monster Ronnie in Iowa? Well, Ronnie in Iowa, because eventually they're going to get their money. And if you were to do something like, say, claim uh, 87 dependents so that you had a federal withholding of zero, they're still going to take Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid out, and that's still going to fund a great deal of the government. And then at the end of the year, you're going to have a huge amount of money that you have to pay them. And when you owe them more than a certain amount of money, guess what happens? They fine you and they get more money. So they wouldn't even care. It, it, it's, a, it's a thing that gets floated around on talk radio from time to time, uh, but it actually has no legitimate Impact. Um, next up today, uh, Dave Rogers here. Uh, I wrote you some time ago about the fantastic effect the podcast is having on the lives of Iraqi citizens who've been listening to you and taking action to be more self sustaining. This guy wrote me a letter a long time ago, folks, I could barely get out and read on the air. Uh, it made me so emotional of uh, these Iraqi men that were working and rebuilding with him as a U.S. contractor uh, and, and rebuilding their own nation that actually sit down and listen to the Survival Podcast every day and had a fellow Iraqi citizen who speaks English sit there and translate as I talked. And that was one of the most unbelievable moments ever on the show. Uh so I'm glad that, that Dave's writing again. And it's also one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had. Uh well here's the rest of what he says. Well I'm finally home uh, from the land of boom, 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 and happy to be here. First, I know you are very well uh well I know you know very well the below information, uh as you have for some time. That being said, second, this is a reasonably concise article on how the Azclowns and he spelled it A Z Z, Az Clowns, are about to absorb about to sink us a little further into the muck and mire. thought you might get a chuckle out of this. Jack, on a personal note, I've had some horrific and sad days in the Middle East. I just wanted to thank you for being the voice of reason and the sound of your voice uh, and your message. Many days got me through some tough times over there. Uh, for that kindness, you will forever have my eternal gratitude. Uh, take care, Jack. Well. Um, Dave, thank you. Thank you for that, and thank you for letting me know that that was going on in the first place. But basically what Dave said is a uh, U.S. default on debt could be a disastrous choice for the economy, and it's what's going to happen if the U.S. doesn't raise the debt ceiling and how we will start defaulting. But I want to read something, one line out of this to you, because i got a couple more things I want to cram in. I know it's going to be a long show today, but uh, there might even be a day without a show this week, so I want to get as much as I can in today. Um, this is by Tom Rom from the Associated Press. I'll try to find a link for you as well because it was cut and pasted. Uh, but the government now borrows about 42 cents of every dollar it spends. Imagine that one day soon the borrowing slams up against the current debt limit ceiling of $14.3 trillion and Congress fails to raise it. The damage would ripple across the entire economy, eventually affecting nearly half of every American... Uh, affecting nearly every American and rocking global markets in the process. Here's the thing. It ain't going to happen. It's never been going to happen. And the Republicans are making noise about it just so they can say they fought the good fight and tell you they need the White House the next time around. But. When a Republican president comes in next, whether it's this election or the following one, and the debt ceiling needs to be raised again, the Democrats will do the same thing. But yet, somehow, no matter who's in control, the debt ceiling will be raised until it blows up. It has to. It has to. It has to. It has to. It can't work any other way. Every time that we fall for this, we ignore exa- you know the very fact of how the financial systems work in the first place um, and I got one last thing for you today I got a lot of people sent me this little TED talk so even though we're long today I'm going to let this play this is about a five minute talk by a guy that's, uh, that's uh, you know I'll just let him speak for himself but he's basically taking open source down to a level of building sustainable communities at the hardware level, how to build tractors and brick makers and things like that. So, again, this is a TED Talk. I'm going to let this guy chat here with you for just a moment, and then I'll come back and wrap today's show up.
0: Hi, my name is Marcin, farmer, technologist. I was born in Poland, now in the U.S. I started a group called Open Source Ecology. We've identified the 50 most important machines that we think takes for modern life to exist. Things from tractors bread ovens, circuit makers. Then we set out to create an open source, DIY, do-it-yourself version that anyone can build and maintain at a fraction of the cost. We call this the Global Village Construction Set. So let me tell you a story. So I finished my 20s with a PhD in Fusion Energy and I discovered I was useless. I had no practical skills. I mean, the world presented me with options and I took them I guess you can call it the consumer lifestyle. So I started a farm in Missouri and learned about the economics of farming. I bought a tractor, then it broke. I paid to get it repaired, then it broke again. And pretty soon, I was broke too. I realized that the truly appropriate low-cost tools that I needed to start a sustainable farm and settlement just didn't exist yet. I needed tools that were robust, modular, highly efficient and optimized, low cost, made from local and recycled materials that would last a lifetime, not designed for obsolescence. I found that I would have to build them myself. So I did just that. And I tested them. And I found that industrial productivity can be achieved on a small scale. So then I published the 3D designs, schematics, instructional videos, and budgets on a wiki. Then contributors from all over the world began showing up prototyping new machines during dedicated project visits. So far we have prototyped 8 of the 50 machines, and now the project is beginning to grow on its own. We know that open source has succeeded with tools for managing knowledge and creativity, and the same is starting to happen with hardware, too. We're focusing on hardware because it is hardware that can change people's lives in such tangible, material ways. If we can lower the barriers to farming, building, manufacturing, then we can unleash just massive amounts of human potential. That's not only in the developing world. Our tools are being made for the American farmer, builder, entrepreneur, maker. We've seen lots of excitement from these people who can now start a construction business, parts manufacturing, organic CSA, or just selling power back to the grid. Our goal is a repository of published designs so clear, so complete, that a single burned DVD is effectively a civilization starter kit. I've planted a hundred trees in a day, I've pressed 5,000 bricks in one day from the dirt beneath my feet, and built a tractor in six days. From what I've seen, this is only the beginning. If this idea is truly sound, then the implications are significant. A greater distribution of the means of production, environmentally sound supply chains, And a newly relevant DIY maker culture can hope to transcend artificial scarcity. We're exploring the limits of what we all can do to make a better world with open hardware technology. Thank you.
1: And I'll post a link to the entire video so you can watch the video, and there's some really, really good additions that you get to it by seeing the visual effects with it as well and maybe make it easier to understand. But let me say, I just think this is awesome. I think this is incredible. I think it, it gives us a lot of hope. And I actually heard about this guy and what he was doing over a year ago. I think I talked about him and he put a link to his site and some things like that. But this this talk I think he's doing here is a relatively new thing. He's been out for maybe a couple months or something like that. Um, but let me tell you what I think it takes to, to go to the next level with this. You know, he was comparing it to operating systems and operate, open operating systems like, you know, Linux and things like that. What has to happen is people have to start showing up that say, what do you want? We'll build it for you and we'll charge you for the labor and you buy your own materials and things like that. So this actually has to be commercialized even though it's open source to be successful. And that may sound a little bit uh, weird, but the, the whole point would be. That if you started to commercialize this, in other words, offer your services as a builder, a fabricator, uh, a deliver on the delivery end. So the guy wants to do a farm, and he wants to do all this open source stuff off of this this guy's site and all the different prototypes they're doing, and he wants a tractor. But he doesn't know how to run a torch, and he just wants to be a farmer, somebody that can come in and build that tractor for him. And you say, well, how's that different from him buying a tractor in a conventional marketplace? It's different in a variety of ways. First, it costs less. Even with, you know, let's say you've got somebody in there that's a fabricating welder type person that charges him fifty dollars an hour and does it in the six days this guy took to build his tractor. Once the guy's built like seven or eight tractors, he's going to be faster than that anyway. So uh, fifty dollars an hour, uh, let's say an eight-hour a day. Uh, you know, let's say it's a forty-hour week at fifty dollars an hour. What is that nine? Uh, what is what is that? I'm sorry. It's actually uh, forty-eight hours of labor, six days. Uh, so you're looking at what, about twenty-four hundred dollars, fifty dollars an hour, twenty-four hundred dollars. That's a reasonable rate to pay a, a fabricator. So since the tractor that replaces the, uh, you know, the, the the tractor that costs a tremendous amount more, let's say it's a. It's a, a, a Two thousand dollar investment versus a ten thousand dollar investment, you're at half the price. And I don't really know how the numbers work out. So, but you, just, you can understand that even putting a labor component in there to build some of the machinery, uh, so that the person that's actually doing the development can actually focus on just doing the development, is relatively low. But here's the big one: the problem with buying, you know, the, the forty thousand dollar tractor from uh, John Deere or, or whoever, right? And I don't want to put any companies down or anything, but here's the reality when my 2006 model tractor has a part that breaks. the the part that they're currently using on the 2011 tractor probably doesn't work, and the old part from the junkyard from the the, the 1980s model probably doesn't work, and that means that individual part is specialized to that specific model uh, within a uh, a small range of years, maybe let's say over a five-year range, designed, as they say, for obsolescence, and i got to get that part. If we do this open source, and everybody follows this blueprint, then when that tractor's broken, anybody familiar with it can fix it and fabricate the part themselves. So we go to a point where we have a uniform standard for this type of... And no one's talking about, by the way, with this, replacing the giant multi-million dollar combines that they use in Nebraska and, and, and closing down on innovation. What they're saying is that for the small producer... Let's find the optimal configuration on price, reliability, dependability, and usability for the people that are going to be working with 40 acres or less. And let's standardize on that by choice, not by government mandate. That's very important. And if that happens, everything becomes easier. Because how many choices do we need when we're just trying to figure out, how do I build a house? And if you can show me the best way in the world to turn dirt into bricks... And it's affordable and replicatable and sustainable, then let's do that. And that's what these open source type architectures are. And they can be used, the, 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 what they can be used to do is unlimited. And anybody can add to it and make it public domain. So maybe I come up with a way to speed up his brick maker. I'm not going to because I don't know that stuff. But if I did, that would also become public domain knowledge. So everybody that had one could make the, the addition together just like an open source software. Like WordPress. When a new version of WordPress comes out that's better than the last one, you click a button and it upgrades it for you. Now, it's not that simple with hardware. But you would have access to how. But I think the big thing, if this guy's vision becomes reality, it's because people go out that are good at building this stuff. If somebody out there right now, if you're an unemployed machinist that can build stuff, if you started taking these designs and, and took that disc he's talking about and making sales presentations to small agricultural operators all over America and say, we'll come in and build this for you. You buy the materials, we provide the labor and the consulting We'll even fabricate the parts that commonly break so you have a spare on hand. We'll show you how to put them on. I think an entire business model could be built around this. And I think there's room for hundreds of people to do it. And the more people that do it, the more effective it'll become. You know how, if you want, you know, everybody bashes Windows. If you wanted to get Windows out of every computer in America, what you need is a whole bunch of Linux fanatics that can go out and teach people how to use Linux. Instead of just saying, it's easy, do it yourself. That's what I'm saying here because this is way harder than using Linux or using some other open source software code. This requires the knowledge to actually take and fabricate the stuff. But it's done in a way that anybody that that basic machinery and equipment and cutting torches and welding can do. So I think it's a great opportunity. And it's why I wanted to end today's show with it on an uplifting note. There is hope for the future. You know, we can change these things. We can make things more sustainable. We can create a new future and a new vision. But it cannot be done by government. And, and the lefty-leaning, tree-hugging liberals out there that listen to this show, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you believe it can, but I'm telling you it cannot. It will not, it can never be. And no government in the history of the world has ever created anything close to the utopia they describe when they're telling you why they have to take your liberty, take your wealth, take your freedom, take your money, take, 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 take. take. And they give very little back. And once it's gone, it's gone. But this type of thing here creates independence versus dependence. And I'd love, you know, if any of you guys out there are skilled in this type of thing. If you're going to try any of these projects, I'd love to know. I'm telling you what, if you build one of these things on your own site, I will at my own expense come out, film, video it, and give you publicity if you'll take the reins and do this. I'll travel anywhere in the continental United States, lower 48. I'm not coming to Alaska and Hawaii for this. I can't afford to do that right now. But anywhere in America, if you'll make this happen, if you'll build it true to spec, exactly the way, so that it is compatible with somebody else that has one just like it, so that the parts can be swapped out, so that things could be fabricated, so that anybody that needed a part, if they, you're gone and somebody else came, could take it and build the part off the specs it would bolt on, anybody that will do that. I'll do everything I can to promote you and help you get started in this. And I'd love to see somebody take the reins and do it. With that, I am going to wrap up today. I wanted, to, again, to leave you with something hopeful. I know today's show went long, probably about an hour and 30 minutes almost today. But, again, there might not be a show, let's say, Thursday or Friday this week. Probably will be on Friday. Might not be one Thursday. I'll see what I can do to get some more out. but. Uh Hopefully this gives you a little bit of extra material for you guys that listen in the car. It doesn't finish today. That day that uh, that day that you're you're in the car without a show, you've got something to listen to. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's a better way
0: to do this. Let me show you a better way.